Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's first meeting is Matthew Grenade, the Chief Market Intelligence Officer at Point72 and the Managing Partner of Point72 Ventures. Matthew oversees all proprietary research and data efforts at the firm, manages several of the internal systematic strategies, leads early-stage venture investing, and recently launched Hyperscale, a new strategy that invests in AI-driven startups and connects them with operating companies to build model-driven businesses. Before joining Point72, Matthew started his investment career at Bridgewater and later was a co-founder of Domino Data Lab, 
a business that develops systems of record for enterprise data science teams across industries. Our conversation covers Matthew's work optimizing the research process at Bridgewater, creating Domino Data Lab, and leaving the company to join Point72. We then turn to his tackling research and data science at Point72, blending the power of computers and humans, and overseeing Point72 Ventures and Hyperscale. Please enjoy my first meeting with Matthew Grenade from Point72. Matthew, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I always go back to people's background, though. Why don't we start at the beginning for you? I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Went to a very small, very progressive school called the Paideia School in Atlanta. And then went to Harvard to college where I was either into or obsessed with journalism. I was ultimately president of the newspaper. And that's kind of like a full-time job while you're in school, which is a little bit insane. And then worked early on in my career with McKinsey and then uh, went to Harvard Business School. So that's kind of the first chapter or two. And so somewhere along the way, I guess you lost the journalism book. I think of a lot of what I do now as having certain elements about that. I think about all that we're doing right now to understand what's going on in the world about the virus and government response. And there's a thing about when you're a journalist where you're really trying to dig in and understand what the truth of the matter is. And it's obviously a very different setting and a very different goal because the goal is to make returns. But I'm still very curious. And I think that's what drove my uh, journalism interest as well. Where along the way did you go from journalism, McKinsey, into a path to data science? Well, I think probably the path before data science was a strong interest in investing. That happened in business school. And in business school, the, the three things I loved was macroeconomics, investing, and negotiating, those three subject areas. So when I left business school, I thought Bridgewater would be a great place to work because it covered two of those three areas, and maybe the third as well on some days. <laughs> so, and it was a great opportunity to really build my understanding of macro investing, which outside of business school, I didn't have any training in it or know anything about it. So that's how I ended up there. And what did you do at Bridgewater? I sort of two roles, one in the beginning, one in the end, and then kind of a transition period in between. So when I first started there, I was a senior investment associate, which meant I did research. And most importantly, the first year, a lot of training. I mean, Bridgewater has phenomenal training programs for investment associates and really kind of for all roles. And then about a year and a half in, I talked with Ray about kind of what I thought would be exciting and interesting to work on. And he had me join the research department and I did a variety of different things there. But really started thinking about the challenges of scaling that department and making it run well. And how do you bring together? So research at Bridgewater is the alpha generation engine. It's how you use technology and data in the hands of researchers to produce new algorithmic systems. And at the time, Bridgewater was going through, I would say, an institutionalization of how do you do all these things at scale um, that's required for the size of the firm. And so ultimately, I became co-head of research with Greg Jensen, and he and I ran that department together for almost five years until I left in 2012. That's what I did there. And what did you find in that process of trying to learn how to scale the research effort? It's kind of like almost any process that you're designing. You have bottlenecks. One of the great bottlenecks in research is the time of the most important and most creative researchers. 
And so the metaphor we often use was an operating room that we were sort of trying to set it up so that a Greg or a Ray or, or Bob Prince could come in and be maximally impactful. And so part of that is around the technology, part of that's around the data, and then part of that's around having two or three different types of researchers who did different types of work. But ultimately, you want those experiences to be really impactful and get the most out of their time. And so that's probably one of the central metaphors we used when we were thinking about it. If you drill down on that, were there one or two implementable improvements that you saw in your time there that made a meaningful change in the organization? Well, I'd say a lot of it was around the structuring of roles and the clarification of who did what and what their responsibilities were. You have a project and you're trying to figure out whatever it is, how to estimate growth better or estimate inflation better, making sure that the team around that has all the skill sets that are needed so that they're working as efficiently as possible and so that the people's time at the top is being used in as smart a way as possible. So, you know, you can imagine that you want to have the data people and you want to have clean data that's accessible and you want to have that ready to go before you start doing your basic modeling. Before that, you want to make sure that the questions that are being answered and asked are structured. And so that was probably the most important thing. In some level, it sounds very basic, but a lot of research teams don't run with a lot of structure. They run more like a a five-year-old soccer game kind of way, you know, sort of everybody chases the ball and we were trying to scale something. And so that was one of the key thoughts we had. It's hard to talk to someone who's at any duration at Bridgewater and not try to ask some question about the culture and your impressions of it. So what did you take away from that experience? I joined when I was still fairly young. I think I joined Bridgewater when I was 27 or so. And it never struck me as that weird or strange or all the headlines that kind of get produced about it or whatever. I mean, the the fundamental tenets of set strong, aggressive goals, be transparent, be honest with each other. Like in my mind, they're not particularly controversial things. And I never found it a particularly controversial way to be. I mean, in fact, in a lot of ways, I found it a very simple way to be. If you had something on your mind, you said it. And if you if you wanted to say something about somebody, you said it to them, not to someone else. And so I always enjoyed the culture. And after I left Bridgewater and started my own company with two other Bridgewater people, we took a lot of that essence with us. I'd say the difference was that Bridgewater has a lot of formality around it. And there's a lot of books and there's apps and there's all these things that exist because they've been so successful. But that core just kind of like way of being with each other when I founded Domino Data Labs, we took all that with us and do all that to this day. And again, though, I think it's largely because it's kind of like how we were as people. And then we saw how effective it made the environment that we were in. So talk about the idea of Domino Data and your decision to leave Bridgewater. Yeah. So my decision to leave Bridgewater was really about wanting the opportunity to start my own business and build from a blank slate. And two of my colleagues that had worked with me in research, Nick Elpert and Chris Yang, over the course of 2012, all three of us left and decided that we wanted to do a business together. And we had a couple of things that we tried before we ultimately got to Domino, uh, which is kind of an interesting story of how you ultimately find your path in entrepreneurship. But for us, after the first couple of ideas didn't work particularly well, we asked ourselves, like, what do we really know about the world? What do we know sort of uniquely about the world that other people don't know about the world? And how might that lead to a business? And 
for us, we thought that that was in the analytical space or what we call the model space or the model driven space, this using data with logic to make predictions. And one of the thoughts we had was that this idea that had been pioneered at Renaissance and Bridgewater and T. Shaw was really going to probably explode across a much wider range of industries. And if that was going to happen, they were going to need a different set of tooling and a different sort of approach than the technology stack that they had today. And so the, you know, the thesis was basically that finance had been model driven and that the world was going to become model driven. And when we originally had that idea in like late 2013 or so, most people didn't know what we were talking about. You know, sort of, I call that the wandering in the woods phase where we were sort of wandering around and it felt like we were almost talking to ourselves about, hey, you know, like this is how the world's going to be and you need to be to move to be model driven. And hey, when you do that, you need this kind of software to do it. So that was a very hard phase for the first two or three years. And some of the places that you might expect were some of our first customers. So like Tesla was one of our first customers, parts of the US intelligence community. We had a relationship with Incutel, started using it. But you fast forward to today, and at this point, I think it's 20% of the Fortune 100 are Domino clients. And I think to some level speaks to all the hard work of the people at Domino, but also speaks to how the world has changed. You have grocery store chains doing data science and being model driven. You have pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, advanced manufacturing firms. It's everybody, cruise lines, you name it. That's kind of our path there and how we thought about that. Walk me through the product or really the unit of what that model-driven approach means. Like conceptually, it's not that hard to understand, but what were you actually providing to all these companies? What Domino provides is basically the system of record for data science. So if you think about how HR uses Workday and salespeople use Salesforce, the thought is that data scientists should use Domino. And so what it does depends on where you sit, much like those other applications, what they do depend on where you sit. If you're a data scientist, it's a workbench that gives you access to compute. It gives you access to revisioning of your data and your models and your results. And those are probably the two kind of big things it does for you. And so basically just creates a good environment from which you can do data science. But if you're an analytics manager, essentially it gives you a repository of all the models in your firm. And it gives you a sense of what everybody is working on in the firm. And so then it lets you drive productivity by getting people on board faster and finding things faster and sharing knowledge faster. And it also lets you monitor those models. So are they decaying? Are they, are they working the way you expect? Are they going off road? But all that comes from the idea that every model is getting built in Domino and stored in Domino. And so then basically, if you're a data scientist, you get those tools. If you're an analytics manager, you get the ability to monitor it. And then as a company, you're able to access it all. So you can hit the models and get the information out of the models that you need. So you, know, you could imagine you have a model that makes predictions about how many windshield wipers are needed in every dealership across the country that uses weather and number of cars and a zip code and all this other stuff. Well, then the supply chain people can access it and the dealership people can access it in a very easy way and pull the information out. And so that's what it does. But the core concept is it's the system of record for all of data science. It's interesting because like a lot of our clients now, we're, we're considered critical infrastructure because a huge chunk of the IP of the firm is built in it. So that's how I would describe it. And then for you personally, you didn't come out of a computer programming background or a data science background. So what role were you playing in the organization? 
my co-founders and I helping to think about and design the product and the strategy of the firm and then the sales and the fundraising. I mean, it's, it's like kind of all startups, you know, in the beginning, I mean, there, were, there, were only, there were only three of us and I was the least technical of the three. So, so I tended to do everything that wasn't technical at that point and focused on all those areas I listed. It was extremely collaborative and extremely fluid, just like it always is. So I certainly wouldn't say that they also weren't doing some of those things. I would just say I wasn't coding with them. So you have to pardon the pun, but clearly the dominoes were falling for Domino Data as companies started to really pay attention to this. Why leave and move on to Point72? Steve's idea for me several times had been, why don't you come here and you clearly like to build things. You can build things here at Point72 and I'll help you do that. And I've got capital to support that. And we'll do things in data science and venture capital and all the sort of systematic investing and we'll figure it out. Now, I'd also sort of had this rule that I was never going to work for anyone else again. I was never going to live in Connecticut again. I was never going to work at a hedge fund again. And so I was literally violating all three of those rules. So I told him, I was like, I think this will probably last for 18 months. And five years later, I'm still here. So it worked a little better than I expected. So let's dive in. We can start on the hedge fund side. Point 72 and its predecessor, this isn't a new organization in many ways. So as you were coming in, what did you initially do? It's not a new organization, but you know, one of the things that I think makes Steve just really remarkable at what he does in this industry and probably any industry he'd be in is just the restlessness and the dissatisfaction with everything that is and this emphasis on what needs to be. I still remember the very first time I met him, my first question to him was I said, you have built a more enduring hedge fund than almost anyone else, right? I mean, there's five or six people like that. Why do you think that is? And he said, because I burned it to the ground three times before and I'm getting ready to do it again. And you know, what he meant was that what is today is not what's going to be profitable tomorrow. And you have to constantly be changing the business. And he has that restlessness deep inside of him. And so the very first thing I did was I took over responsibility for what's called our proprietary research. So Steve had a thesis that we really needed to build a lot of in-house capabilities around research and that we needed to be able to essentially generate a lot of our own information about the companies we were investing in. And some of that had to do with how do you best produce those insights? Some of that had to do with the growing explosion of alternative data. Some of it had to do with changes in the sell side and how potent that information was and how much investment they were making in that information. But all those things sort of conspired together to say, look, we need to invest very heavily in proprietary research. So we do stuff on supply chain. We do physical collection. We do data science. We do web scraping. We do a very wide variety of stuff. When I got here, not all of that was in place. There was an early effort around supply chain and even earlier effort around data, alternative data. And my first job was to really sort of turn that into a business that would benefit all the investors at Point72. And so how does that get disseminated across the many portfolio management teams? There's two different answers to that. And so one answer to that is that we have different product lines. And the product lines essentially vary based on how much technical acumen a team has. And so we have a lot of teams that have 
analysts that are fairly technical and those teams plug directly into our databases and things like that and can pull the data into Excel models and manipulate it and all those sorts of things. On the other extreme, we produce a lot of reports that would read to you like a a fairly dense sell side report. And so, you know, they're not written quite the same way, but they're written reports that you can read. And then in between, we have all sorts of tables and graphs and those sorts of things that we produce for the teams. So that's kind of one, that's the product vector. The, the other approach that we take, though, is we do a lot of bespoke work and we work really closely with the teams. A lot of times I'll be on panels and things like that and this whole theme about where does the competitive advantage in data come from and all these sorts of things comes up. And I actually tend to think it has very little to do with the data sources itself or the information. It's the competitive advantage you're looking for is the ability to integrate across your investors with your data scientist, with the people who are sourcing the data and get that whole chain of people to work well together and communicate well together because they come from different worlds. But you know, like when an investor has a really interesting challenge or a problem for them to be able to communicate well with a a data scientist who's able to then understand their problem or any type of researcher that we have who's really able to understand their problem, that's where the real power comes from and we're able to do pretty cool and exciting stuff. What's an example, just one granular example of that communication link working where it may not in a, say, a different organization? I'll give a couple of examples. <laughs> so last year, we were looking at Etsy and some of the top line numbers in Etsy didn't look great. And so, like I said, we have all these charts and tables and you sort of look at that we're predicting user growth and these sorts of things. And things seemed a little bit below consensus. But one of the analysts said, hey, like, can we do more here? And the data scientists team was able to essentially cohort all the data based on how long a person had been using Etsy. And to basically kind of create like the most loyal cohorts versus the least loyal cohorts. And when you looked at it that way, what you saw is that the loyal cohorts, their their revenue growth was actually really expanding, was expanding pretty rapidly. And so you sort of had this core group of users that mattered and they were really sticking with the platform and doing really well. And then you had what I would sort of almost call like noise in the data that Etsy had made some acquisitions and the acquisitions were sort of people had gotten grouped in as users and all this sort of stuff. And so that's the kind of thing where an investor, a point to me too, has a great understanding of the company, is looking at that data and then has a question and the data scientist is able to then use their technical capabilities and all these data sets that we have. And so by the way, to answer something like that, we use credit card, we use email receipt, we use app downloads. We're using a lot of different things to then sort of bring them back a really good answer. There's a lot of discussion of the use of data and computers and computer-driven trading, particularly in shorter-term investing. And I'm just curious, from an outside perspective of Point72 being an organization that turns over portfolios, and a lot of those multi-manager structures tend to be that way, what's your perspective on this kind of notion of how computers are fitting into the investment landscape? Point72 is a really interesting place to work with regard to that question, because the firm is very well known for its history in discretionary investing, but Steve's also had systematic teams since 1994, so almost as long as anyone. And 
you know, I would say one of our major theses of the firm right now in terms of our strategy going forward is that the world of discretionary investing in the world of systematic investing has been has been kept too far apart. At some point, you know, discretionary investing has obviously gone on for a very long time. Quant investing rose up, but it sort of took its own path. But that each of them has sort of different things to offer the other. And so a lot of what we're trying to figure out is how to bring those two worlds together in terms of what they each offer. And you know, I think where that starts, you know, is really kind of at this question of what people are good at versus what machines are good at. When our thesis is that humans are particularly good at the creativity required for idea generation, good at working off of thin data or very scarce data, good at defining and refining goals, knowing what questions to ask, seeing the big picture and how things have changed and how regimes are shifting, and good at emotional intelligence. So reading a room, talking to a CEO, those kinds of things. Whereas computers are very good at math, scale, repetitive tasks, processing vast amounts of data, connecting dots when there's vast amounts of data. So, you know, being able to figure out algorithms for identifying cats from dogs and those sorts of things and rule-based decision-making. And so that then sort of informs our view of what each of those things should be doing in this ultimate mix that we're trying to come up with. So that's a little bit of how we're thinking about that. And then across the different portfolio management teams, I imagine there's a variety of those sort of stronger and weaker skill sets. How and does your part of the investment activities, are you using that blend of that human element and the quantitative element? We approach it from two different perspectives in a very unoriginal fashion. We call it person plus machine and machine plus person. <laughs> so when we talk about person plus machine, that's really about augmenting the people with as many tools and capabilities from the computer world that you can, but still it's fundamentally discretionary investing. And so everything we do related to data, so all of the supply chain research, the alternative data, like I was talking about, the web scraping, et cetera, that's a huge category of things that we do, all enabled by machine processing and machine learning and those sorts of things so that we can help the investors. We've also built a lot of tooling. So we have a research platform, we have a risk platform, we have a trading platform. Again, all of those serve the same purpose. I mean, they're all about automating tasks. They're all about putting information at the hands of portfolio managers and analysts so that they can make quick decisions. One of the things I oversee is our research platform. And what the research platform is really meant to do is make it so that a portfolio manager, imagine sort of Bloomberg, except for it's all your data. So a portfolio manager sits there and says, okay, what do my analysts think about this stock? What were the notes from the last meeting we had with the CEO? What's all the alternative data saying? What's the three latest news events? What are the five sell side firms that cover it saying it? It's all there and it's all structured and then they can make the decision that they're wanting to make. And you can imagine that there's flags on it as things are happening and are they hitting their price targets or way off their price targets and all those sorts of things. So that's just an example of the kind of tooling we're trying to build. And then we also, on the people plus machine side, invest a lot in training. We have a program called the Nines program where people join to become PMs and they have some period of time, six to nine months, where they're not trading money, they're building their process. And we invest a lot during that time. They're always experienced investors. So they've invested before, so they're 
so I guess more accurately, they're rebuilding their process here. We invest a lot so that they can use our research platform and all these tools in their process before they start trading money. The other way, the machine plus people way that we do it, which ties a little bit to some of the systematic books that I oversee at the firm, is more around this idea of basically the people are great at idea generation. So they generate the ideas and they generate the recommendation on the name, the selection of the name, and are able to sort of process all the information that goes into that. But then the computers handle on some level the selection from the whole basket of ideas. Which of those ideas do we like best and why based on who has skill and what and why? Also then doing the portfolio construction and then doing the execution. And so they pick up a lot more of the processing elements of it. And so that's kind of the other lens that we come at it from. When you're behind the scenes and you're able to look at all the data of the success of individuals, to what extent do you find that, you know, start on that first bucket of the person plus machine, that someone who comes in, maybe an experienced investor from the outside, how much are they able to get better from using all of these data-driven inputs? I think in some sectors, it's almost impossible to trade the sector without a lot of the data inputs. It ties a little bit to one of the trends you see in the industry overall, which is, I think, the strength of the platforms and the power of the platforms. And basically, we have the economies of scale to be able to afford millions and millions and millions of dollars of data. And so if you look in consumer as an example, like I don't know how if you're only managing like seven or 800 million bucks, like how you even compete against our team plus the teams at the other big platforms. In other sectors, I would say some of the alternative data in particular is newer. So there, there is more differentiation. We don't run pure A-B tests in, the, in quite the way that your question was suggesting, but I would say that the data is helpful, but it is just one input. And the real secret sauce is the ability to meld as many inputs as possible into a recommendation. And I think that's what makes our investors really, really good. And then what we try to do is give them as many inputs as possible. And this is just another set of inputs that, in, like I said, in some sectors are really, really hard to compete without. It's kind of stunning that with all the things you're describing, which I'm sure we could go into layers and layers, that's only a part of what you're doing. And I want to turn over to the other side, which is the venture capital side, and talk about sort of how you first got going investing in venture capital and where you're headed with it. So when I joined Steve five years ago, he, he's been in the investing world a long time. So he'd certainly done some early stage deals, but he didn't feel like he had a proper venture capital effort, like a real committed venture capital firm that, to use his words, kind of did it right. And so we invested a lot of time in thinking about what we would want that firm to look like, how we would want it to be different from other firms. And on some level, like what did we know from the hedge fund side that we thought might be applicable on the venture side? And if I were to sort of distill kind of the two or three key things, one was we decided we wanted a firm of experts. If you look on our hedge fund side, if you go talk to our two or three analysts that cover hotels or airlines or whatever, you know, they're going to be some of the very, very best minds in the world on that industry. And so we wanted to apply a similar concept on the venture side. And obviously it would manifest differently, but we wanted, wanted our people to be very expert driven. We wanted a real do the work mentality. We didn't want to invest on social proof. We wanted to invest on work. Like we wanted to 
have gotten to the bottom of the industries and technologies and transformations you're talking about and have confidence from that work. We also wanted to be very outbound and thesis driven. And you know, a lot of that was driven by the fact that we didn't have a brand in venture. And so on some level, the last deal you want to invest in is one that comes knocking in Stanford, Connecticut. You want to go find the right companies to invest in if you're just starting out in venture. And so we put some of those ideas together and the first area we built was a fintech investment team. And it started out with one person, it's now almost 12 people and they invest globally in financial technologies. We then built a team around AI machine learning. Like we thought that that was a very important transformative space. So it's kind of the next area that we built out. And then we started doing some cybersecurity. And now we're thinking about digital healthcare and we're thinking about enterprise. And so adding a couple other areas over the next, say, six to nine months. But all of them are at the top. I mean, you have people who have been investing in those spaces for years and years and years. They know the technologies. They know the customers of these companies. They have strong theses and views about how companies are going to get built and how money is going to get made. And that really drives our process. And I think it produces a better approach to investing, meaning like I think it produces better returns. It's also a lot more compelling for founders. One of the things I care a lot about as the managing partner of the firm is when the folks from the teams are meeting with these companies, do the companies come away thinking, that is the smartest venture capitalist I've met in my space? Like, are they accretive in terms of strategy and where this company should go? And so that's really how we're thinking about it. How have you blended as you mentioned earlier, that desire and that core of the hedge fund side of the organization about flexibility and the, the willingness to change your mind with venture capital, which is sort of notoriously you know, very, very long duration investments. It's true. And it's funny, actually, um, I think Mark Andreessen had a, a couple of comments on this lately, which was that the strength of the of hedge fund investors is they don't get wed to their views. He was sort of critiquing venture capitalists for continuing to sort of stick with theses that weren't working. I think in both worlds, you do the work to get to conviction on the duration that you're investing in. And so on the hedge fund side, we're often investing for the earnings print. <laughs> and so we do the work to get to the conviction on the earnings print. On the venture side, the investment is probably seven to 12 years in duration. And so is that what I just said might suggest? We then do the work to make sure that, that we have that kind of conviction. A lot of it starts with how we think the world is changing. So what do we think the really big important trends are? So as an example, like in AI machine learning, like we think it's about the creation of what we call model-driven businesses. And you know, we think that is a, a massive enduring trend that's going to affect almost every industry out there. And then similarly, we do a lot of work on the team to make sure that we understand how they're going to be able to do what they do and what kind of skills and capabilities they have. Matthew, this is sort of baffling to me that you went from whatever you were doing earlier in your career and all of a sudden a macroeconomist research at Bridgewater and now all of a sudden you're a venture investor. What did you learn in your first couple of years of running 0.72 Ventures that you didn't or couldn't have known before you were actually in it? We went in with this thesis that we would be able to figure out on some multi-year timeline how the world was going to change and, and generate investment themes in that way. And that was kind of a thought. The question is, 
could that really work? Could you really get experts that were able to see that and do that in that way? And, you know, I think that our answer is like, yes, actually you can do that. And if you take like a thesis, like our model driven thesis or in FinTech, we have a bunch of theses around how banks are changing and what they need as a result of that. And you put all that together. And I think that the number one thing I've learned is that that is actually a doable thing with the right experts. What are those theses in the bank side? The main thesis on the bank side is that you've had all these quote unquote FinTech disruptors come along. And there's been some good businesses built out of that. But mostly what those companies are is they have a tech advantage, but they don't have access to customer advantage and they don't have any sort of cost of capital advantage like a bank does and things like that. And so they've built technologies that people like. But if we were to sort of offer a very broad brush observation about all of fintech, they've often had a hard time making their economics work. And so our thesis is more that now banks and other financial providers have to respond to the improved tech through digital transformation. So we've made a lot of investments in all the different things that a big bank like JP Morgan or whoever is going to need to, well, not just big banks, small, medium, big. Good thing in the US is there's lots and lots of banks, lots and lots of financial service providers that they're going to need to be able to drive that digital transformation in the way that customers want. I mean, consistently in surveys, people always say that their financial service providers have the weakest technology, and we just don't think that that's going to endure. So that's probably our biggest thesis. Globally, we also have a thesis that is that around this idea that the distinction between financial services and other consumer experiences, that border is going to blur. And so the flip example I give of this is like when you go buy your children's playset on online, they're going to offer you insurance at the same time and also probably to finance it, right? And it's all sort of right there as a package. But more concretely, we have investments in Australia and the Middle East and South America, all these places where financial products are embedded in HR systems. So we're invested in this company Flare in, in Australia where you sign up, you show up as an employee day one and you set up in the Flare system, but then all your retirement accounts and ultimately your bank accounts and all these other things are offered to you through that experience. We call that finance at the edge. And that's our second big thesis. We have a few others, but those would be the two I'd highlight. So I know you've been doing this for a couple of years just with Steve's personal capital. And there's a new effort to take an outside capital. I'm curious what that thought process was and what you'll be doing with it. We have an effort called, we've had for a couple of years that kind of came out of our venture effort called Hyperscale. And Hyperscale is actually kind of a mix of private equity and venture capital. So it goes back to the thesis we have about model-driven businesses. So, so our view is that models, so if you think about data and compute power and AI and all these other things, they're interesting and they're powerful. But the question is really from an investor standpoint, how do they come together in an enduring business model? And our answer to that question is what we call a model-driven business. And you've seen a lot of these grow up on the consumer side. So, you know, like Netflix is a model-driven business in the sense that it has a ton of content, but the real power of it is that it has this recommendation engine that learns a lot about you and gets you to watch more content. And the statistic that I always love is something like 80% of content consumption on Netflix platform is driven by the recommendation engine, which is kind of a staggering statistic. And so I think you could do a similar analysis of Amazon and 
Tencent and Spotify and some of these other companies. What we've seen for the last few years in our venture world is that just this explosion of that same approach in lots of other industries. So IT help desk, managed security services, I could just go on and on and on and on. Again, all of it's this idea that you're collecting data, you're putting models in the center of that, you're making recommendations and you're making some of a process either better for customers or, or more efficient as a result. The goal of Hyperscale is to build the best model-driven businesses in the world. And we are particularly interested in services businesses because they tend to be highly fragmented. They tend to have a lot of labor. They tend to have a lot of labor inefficiency. And our approach is generally that, and this is where the VCPE mix thing comes in, is that we, we find some technology solution that makes some services industry like that more efficient. And then we find a operating company, an opco, that has the data and the customers that we can then apply that technology to, see the margin expansion, and then either do further acquisitions or some sort of roll up or a big co-integration or something like that. Um, and so, you know, like as an example, in managed security services is a, is a really interesting example. There's thousands of companies out there that are MSSPs, managed security service providers. And what they do is they work for medium sized businesses and essentially process all of the exceptions and all of the alerts that all the security software on all of our computers are always throwing. Oh, somebody just went through the firewall. Oh, somebody just plugged in a USB device. And the job for most MSSP analysts is sitting there all day long, clicking, okay, 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 waiting until that one in a thousand event happens. It's like, oh, that's the one. Go work on that one. It's a job that's ripe for automation. It's also a job that at the lowest level is hard to do and kind of painful. And so you see very high turnover in these places. We got a technology team together that built automation software for some of those first level tasks. And then we bought an MSSP for the data and the customers. We're basically expanding their margins as a result of that effort. And then if that proves out, we'll continue to do further acquisitions. And as you mentioned, we're, um, we're in conversations with some of our LPs and from the hedge fund side and others about maybe joining uh, as investors in that. It's always been a perennial question of some of our investors, will there be opportunities to join Steve's private investing? And so we're, we're considering making some of that available. What's been the most challenging aspect of how you manage your time? The most important thing, I think, is is being able to sort of create sustained and endured focus on problems and issues and being able to have really high quality interactions with people where everybody's prepared and you're really able to dig in. And so I run my time in an extremely structured fashion and I tend to dedicate whole days to things that I do. The other thing I would sort of say maybe across all that is the most important thing is to have great people and have really, really great managers in charge of all these things so that they're driving the boat hour to hour and day to day. It's just reminded as you say that of of that great Mike Tyson quote about everyone has a plan until you know he punches them in the mouth. And particularly when you mentioned that and we didn't talk about it earlier, but you run the center book of a hedge fund. I would have to think that that's something that most people would think of as a eight day a week job, let alone a Wednesday and you know part of Tuesday or what, you know however you structure it. So how do you go about sustaining that focus when the capital markets don't really care if it's your day to focus on 0.72 ventures or hyperscale? Well, I'd say a couple of things, man. 
I have oversight of it, but I mean, there's a whole team of 50 people or something like that, that do do it eight or nine days a week. So that's one thing. And then, like you said, I mean, sometimes the capital markets do sort of come along and demand that, <laughs> and demand that the whatever the plan was, you just stand down the plan. And that's okay. But most of the time, the world's actually not that way. I'd say most of the time, my value add is not going to be in in dealing with some issue today. And the team has to be structured and the team is structured so that whatever challenge, you know, or trading issue or whatever we have in the moment, that that's what they're dealing with. And that what I'm focused on is our longer term goals and the research we're doing and longer term strategy and leading diagnoses when there's big problems and all those sorts of things. So obviously things like COVID come along and if you looked at my calendar in March, it looked very different than anything else and the whole plan did go out the window and, and that's fine. But I would also say that other than getting through March, we didn't really accomplish that much. We didn't further our agendas, our OKRs, those sorts of things. And so what I try to do is actually to some degree kind of avoid being sucked into the day-to-day and into the noise of it all and really try to stay focused on the big goals that we're trying to move and the big rocks and make sure that that's what we're driving. Can't always do that, but that's where I think I create the most advantage. Where do you think this business, and when I say this, it could be hedge fund, venture, private equity, hyperscale, all of it. Where do you think this business looks like in five years? I think the big will get bigger. I think that there are definite advantages to economies of scale. Like, you know, I think about how much we invest in our risk systems, our trading systems, our data systems, our research systems, our training, all these sorts of things. And that all of those things create advantage and they come from being at a certain size and having certain economies of scale. And I think being a small fund is harder and harder. I think that, as we talked about earlier, I think you'll see quant and discretionary become closer and closer together. And I'm not sure if it's like a full merger or not, but they'll certainly be more similar than they are today. I think you'll see more firms investing across the capital structure. So doing public markets and pre-IPO and venture. In part, if you've done work and you have insights around automobiles, let's go back three or four years, you know, you want to you want to invest in Cruise, you want to invest in Tesla, you want to think about GM, you want to think about Uber, you want to think about Google, you want to think about Lyft. And so most of those companies now are public, but four or five years ago, they weren't. So you want to be able to sort of use those insights across the whole spectrum. How about on the private side? I think on the private side, a lot of those things hold too. I mean, I think you see the bigger firms getting bigger. I think you see the bigger firms moving. I'd say the hedge funds are moving towards the private markets and the private market guys are moving towards the public markets. I mean, you know, you have Andreessen Horowitz that registered as an RIA for whatever set of reasons. The one thing I would say is on the private side, that's like the most discretionary of discretionary games. It is truly like, okay, we're going to have a typical, if you watch the show Silicon Valley, it's like, you know, we're going to have this entrepreneur in, we're going to stare into their soul and we're going to know whether or not they're the next Mark Zuckerberg. And I think that five years, I think that'll get challenged over the next five years. I think people will become more, more model-driven, more data-driven, more rigorous about that. All right, Matthew, I want to turn to a couple closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? So I love politics, was very involved in Mayor Pete's run for president. He's a friend of mine and my wife since college. And so that's just the latest manifestation of my interest in politics. Also really love to cook. I was taught to cook by my grandmothers growing up in the South. And so uh, enjoy that a lot. And this year is not allowed for much of it, but 
I normally also have a, well, have one this year. I'm just not doing much in it, a vegetable garden. Those would be my hobbies outside of work and family. Right. Now, if you started your career over today, money's no object. You couldn't be an investor and you restarted your career. What do you think you'd do? Let me give two answers to that. I think what I'd probably do is kind of what I did at one point, which is I'd be a, an entrepreneur, a technology entrepreneur. The more interesting answer, if I were to do something radically different, I'd probably be a musician. I'd probably play guitar. Money, no object, and, and maybe skill, no object. I don't know. <laughs> what new habits have you picked up during the pandemic? Could be both good or bad habits. I'd say a lot of things have changed as a result of the pandemic. So one, I'm a fairly religious Peloton rider now. I used to do SoulCycle and work out with a trainer. So first thing I bought when we went on lockdown was a Peloton. It came 10 days late or whatever. So I've done that. I try to go for a daily walk after dinner. That's very different. I don't, I don't think I'd ever even walked through my neighborhood prior to that. Those probably be the two habits I'd point to that are pretty different than before. What's your biggest pet peeve? I hate when people say the word sure. Like you'll ask somebody to do something and they'll say sure. One of my colleagues at Bridgewater always said sure is a disingenuous yes. And so I'm not sure actually everyone always means it that way, but I can never get that phrase out of my head. So that'd be one. More substantively, lack of open-mindedness. You could probably tell me anything and I would at least consider it for a second. I mean, it might actually be a weakness of mine, but when people just are highly, highly convicted and won't hear a view or have a debate or a discussion, that makes me bonkers. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Work hard. Both my parents worked very hard. and They expected me to work hard. and That's a pretty simple one. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? It actually goes back to something I said at one point during this interview. I mean, it, again and again, it's all about the people. It's all about the people you're working with. You can do amazing, amazing things if you build your team right. And if you don't build your team right, you're not going to do anything. <laughs> and so... You just really can't invest too much in getting that ingredient of things right. Almost every mistake I've made, it comes back to some sort of person mistake. Matthew, super fascinating. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators.